Hey, Rarecast listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new program from Global Genes called Data DIY. Access to data is essential for advancing the understanding and treatment of rare diseases. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is to be as savvy about data as researchers and clinicians. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to become empowered data owners and stewards. If you'd like to learn more about the program, attend an upcoming Data DIY workshop, or view resources, go to globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Expanded access, a means of allowing people with serious and life-threatening conditions who fail to meet the enrollment criteria of a clinical trial to gain access to experimental therapies, has become an area of growing interest among the rare disease community. Though so-called right-to-try legislation has allowed patients to bypass regulators, it's done little to address the true obstacles patients face in getting access to these therapies. The Expanded Access Summit, which will be held January 27th to 29th at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., will bring together regulators, drug developers, patients, and other stakeholders interested in expanded access. We spoke to Jess Rayborn, CEO of Wide Trial and executive producer of the Expanded Access Summit, about the promise of expanded access, how it can be used to improve the clinical development of therapies, and how to address barriers that remain. Jess, thanks for joining us. Hi, Danny. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. We're going to talk about expanded access, efforts to improve patient access to experimental therapies, and the upcoming third annual Expanded Access Summit. Let's start with a a basic concept. What is meant by the term expanded access, and and what does it encompass? Expanded access is basically a clinical trial for patients who can't get into regular clinical trials. That's as simplest and as purest a definition as I've been able to come up with, and I think it's a good one. Uh, Obviously, there are a lot of rules about what constitutes acceptable drugs and acceptable circumstances for which we do this. But but this is basically it. A lot of patients don't meet the inclusion-exclusion criteria for traditional research studies. Um, a lot of additional patients uh, live in places that traditional research studies are not made available. Uh, and a lot of people, unfortunately, in this country don't have access to the best medical centers, the, the centers of excellence where uh, where often the research trials for the newest, most exciting medicines are underway. So th- th- there's a there's a huge proportion of patients in almost any disease, uh, and it's almost always the vast majority of patients who who are really not even eligible for uh, research trials. And in some of these diseases, 
access to early um, pre-market investigational medicines is uh, is a really important part of the uh, of the consideration in care. You became involved in this issue after your father was diagnosed with the neurodegenerative condition ALS. What happened that led you to walk away from your career in finance to to dive into this world? <laughs> well. It, it, Actually, it wasn't a hard uh, decision, to be honest. I mean, look, when, when I think everybody has moments in their lives where personally their priorities change and they, and they have kind of a golden moment. Um, and clearly, th- this, this was it for me. Um, maybe I'd already been conditioned for it because my grandpa, uh, not in the same side of the family, interestingly, my, my mother's dad uh, had ALS and he died of that disease when I was a boy. So I, I kind of knew about the disease all along and how terrible it was, um, but not until my dad was diagnosed with it did I realize the, you know, the, the severity of the impact on families and the patients, and probably more importantly, and this is really critical, the, the sense of loss of hope and control uh, uh, in, in the patient himself or herself. Um, it, it was just so compelling. And so very soon after... Um, you know, I left my job in New York. I was a hedge fund manager. Uh, became extremely interested in finding out what the treatment landscape looked like, which didn't take long because there's nothing really available in that disease that is meaningfully effective at uh, changing the outcome. And 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 got involved progressively with some projects to find out and and to advance uh, new business approaches to the development of new medicines for breakthrough diseases like ALS. And expanded access is, you can't get far in that space without recognizing that uh, we're not doing well enough to engage the, the full patient population or at least wider ranges of patients than, than the narrow cohorts who can be accommodated in traditional trials. So, yeah, I got, I got very interested in access. And, you know, on a personal level, during my work, um, which, which got as I mentioned, progressively involved in going to Washington and advocacy, um, which got into consulting. I've I've always had contact with patient communities, and patients would call me and their families would call me and say, this is is such a nightmare. The public needs to understand there is nothing worse than, you know, it's one thing to have a disease, but there's nothing worse than to have a a terminal disease. You know you're dying. Your, your, Your capabilities to even feed yourself uh, and to move are, are going down each day. Uh, that's one thing, but it's yet another to know that there are, there are exciting, uh, therapeutics under study right now. And in many diseases, these are well tolerated medicines. The doctor and the patient would like to try it, but because of objective obstacles, uh, man-made obstacles, really, uh, they can't even try to see if that medicine would help them uh, during the, the few, the little time that they have remaining in their life. So, yeah, expanded access early on became very important to me. I think a lot of people assume that the barrier to this is the FDA, but my sense is the agency has been generally open to this if someone goes through the necessary process. What's the thinking of the FDA these days? Well, I can I can speak to my experience with FDA uh, leaders um, at at a range of levels of 
of authority uh, from from the review divisions themselves um, up to some of the, the the central leadership areas at Cedar and Fever, um, including the commissioner and um, and the division director Janet Woodcock of Cedar. Um, it, it has always been supportive of of pre market access and the ability uh, to use existing channels which have existed since 1987 and frankly were privately negotiated even before, did I say 67? 1987. Um, and were privately negotiated even before 1987. Um, and, uh, you know, Janet Woodcock herself would be the first to tell you that she, she does not want to stand in the way of, of a patient in need uh, working through the existing channels to gain access. Now, <clears throat> some people would say, well, that, that's just lip service. But, um, you know, it goes a little bit deeper than that. I've, I've had very detailed conversations with, um, with, with Dr. Woodcock and, and others. Um, you know, you also look at the track record. Uh, it's, it's, there was a study looking over 10 years. Um, and it was it, 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 extremely positive in terms of the proportion of IND applications that were authorized, and that's for both single patient requests and the larger traditional cohort expanded access programs. But but look, you you hit on a on a really big thing. Um, there's a human concept or a or a proclivity to um, to to mix two things together. We we call it spurious correlation in finance, where you've got two two phenomena happening at the same time. One of them is FDA is regulating both uh, you know, pre-market access to research trials and regulating pre-market access to treatment programs. Okay, so we know they're regulating it, and also we as patients aren't getting access, right? That's a problem. So it's very easy to see that correlation and to assume that one is related to the other, but they're not related to the other. There is another explanation for why expanded access is not utilized to the extent that it could, and that is uh, commercial feasibility, which is um, really important, and that's been the nature of most of my work in the last 10 years, and um, it's, it's not just commercial or economic feasibility from the standpoint of the drug company, but there's also feasibility factors uh, for, from other stakeholders, uh, healthcare providers, payers, uh, physicians, so... Um, it's 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 a lot bigger story than the simple uh, assumption that FDA has got a, a you know a big chest of, of medicines and they're and they're not disseminating when they should be. I, I want to talk about that last point you made, but before we do, what's your sense on pharmaceutical companies' attitude towards this? Do, do they represent a bigger uh, my buyer? sense? Yeah, yeah. So great. That's really where we need to focus. Is this feasible and is it attractive? Um, and, and despite the reputation that I think the pharmaceutical industry has, especially with some very high-profile cases of, of um, prescription drug pricing and uh, prescri prescription drug promotions, um, this is an industry made up of very uh, determined people motivated for similar reasons that have motivated me in this latter part of my career. 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm always meeting people who are struggling to find ways to do right by patients. Um, you know, but it's, it's obviously a little more nuanced than uh, just helping, you know, one patient, especially if it's one who might be the most visible or who's, uh, who's speaking the loudest. It's, okay, how can we do this ethically and fairly? How can we do this in ways that uh, uh, preserves our ability to develop the medicine and get it approved? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, I like to take a progressive approach. Others don't see it that way. Others will cite the same factors that I just cited and sort of regard those as barriers and say, well, you know what, let's not do it, or uh, expanded access is controversial. It's not controversial. Uh, this country wants it. Uh, it's just that there are some challenges to doing it. To answer your question about attitude, uh, in pharma, uh, you see a diversity of positions in pharmaceutical companies the same way there's a diversity of, of, of opinions and um, abilities to take up any innovation in any industry, uh, and, and it's evolving. So um, I, I would say it's, it's getting much better, um, and part of this is in response to public initiatives. It's actually a law. Um, part of 21st Century Cures, it requires uh, any drug company developing a medicine in the United States for uh, a serious or life-threatening disease to make public and transparent its internal policy. And the more visibility around that that occurs, uh, the, the, the more incentive these companies will have to have defensible policies, not just our, our expanded access policy is we don't do it, or uh, our, our expanded access policy is you send, you send in a request, we'll take a look at it and get back to you. Um, you know, we, we've got the visibility uh, there. People are expecting better answers, and, uh, and that's a good thing. What is the reason for that resistance? Is it just a shortage of drug to, to use? Is it concerns about corrupting their, their data set that they're relying on getting through FDA? Yes and yes, and, and several others. We've got, uh, you know, I've got kind of a core set of, of bullet points of challenges to expanded access that uh, a commercial life science company uh, needs to think about. Um, so w one of them you mentioned inventory of, of products. Um, I think it's a mistake to regard that as a fixed number. As an economist, you'll recognize that um, you know if something is producible, uh, it's it's not a matter of, of a constant you know fixed amount of something. It's what does it take to make more, or what does it take to justify use of some of this fixed number until we can make more. Um, but but. At the end of the day, it costs money to provide product. Uh, it also costs money to run a clinical program, uh, irrespective of whether these are done as single patient requests or under a protocol. Uh, you still have to monitor the results of these programs. You still have to uh, you know, uh, report to FDA serious adverse events that come forth. Um, what do you do if there is a serious adverse event or, or uh, God forbid, a, a fatality uh, while somebody is being treated with your medicine, and and you have to uh, you have to budget for that 
as well because everything uh, costs money to um, to manage and to report in a responsible way. Um, as to that last element, that's kind of a, a brow-raising comment that sometimes people that have uh, very serious unsolved diseases do die, unfortunately, and they do have adverse events. The question isn't, um, you know, do bad things happen? The question is, it, does this reveal a safety event that exposes our company to something they wouldn't otherwise have, and does it reveal a safety exposure to the patients that they should be protected from? Um, and and in, in both these cases, there are, for both these cases, there are rules about what kinds of medicines uh, do qualify uh, from a regulatory perspective for expanded access. And um, it's um, it's had actually remarkable success in the 30 years uh, since being um, rolled out in legislation passed, did that do anything to lower the barriers to patients getting expanded access? In my opinion, Danny, Right to Try did two things. Um, fundamentally, of course, it did not do anything to lower the barrier to expanded access. I think anybody who's been in this space for any amount of time knows that, you know, and, and maybe even some of the advocates of, of Right to Try uh, know that it, it was not targeting any fundamental determinant of patients uh, being able to gain access. And that's why I think a lot of people took offense to, you know, often the journalist's response or some of the advocates' response, they would, you see headlines that said, congratulations, Louisiana patients, you now have access to these medicines. And it was nonsense. That's absolutely not what the case was, especially at the state level. Now we have federal right to try, um, which is, which is, essentially the option to step around FDA and or step around the requirement to uh, gain FDA authorization before engaging in expanded access and merely inform them. So you don't say, can we do it? You just say, we did it. We're allowed to under right to try um, and, and we're going to report the outcome. So, you know, theoretically, there's an opening there if you wanted to skip FDA authorization, if you wanted to skip collaboration with your review division that happens to be uh, very influential on your ultimate success as an approved product, um, there's just no motivation for drug companies to do that because FDA has almost never said no, and FDA has served as an ally uh, uh, invariably with companies in finding a path to learning about how patients respond to the medicine and, and also in, in authorizing uh, big group expanded access programs 
if you want to do it. So it still comes back to the company. If the company wants to do it, they can do it. So anyway, to answer the question about right to try, Danny, um, it it um, it did a very good thing. However, you know, despite the fact that fundamentally it's irrelevant, uh, we we now know what I think a lot of us were thinking on a human level, and that is that this country believes in patients' rights to express their own interests in exploratory medicine. Uh, this country recognizes the prerogative that doctors and their own patients have in in deciding, uh, you know, what's what's appropriate care, especially when these patients have terminal illnesses and have no meaningful alternative. Um, the, the idea that a central agency would, or a central review division, or a central bioethics committee would would make individual decisions about uh, individual people's appetite for hope or individual tolerance of uncertain outcome, uh, I find preposterous. And I think um, now the world knows that um, America finds it preposterous as well. We, we should do better by uh, enabling exploratory use of medicine. So Right to Try made that very clear. But what Right to Try did not do is, um, is solve the, the, the fundamental challenges uh, of drug companies who would like to do it, um, but who have limited resources, especially cash-like companies that don't have any products on the market, they have a job to do. Uh, so, so how can we make it easier? How can we explore ways to uh, utilize expanded access to the extent it was first envisioned in the 1980s um, and to the extent that it was practiced at in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, which frankly we haven't seen lately, seen a lot of small, uh, undersized, or, or programs that are initiated very late, later than it needs to be, uh, or no expanded access at all, when, when we could be seeing uh, much more meaningful engagement of patients. Rarecast listeners may recall that you are the CEO of Wide Trial. You can go back into our archives and, and hear a past interview with you uh, about this. Um, you had mentioned earlier the challenge of making expanded access commercially viable. Can you explain what you're trying to do there with wide trials in that context? Sure. Thanks, Danny. There, there are a lot of approaches to solving this problem that we've just spent a lot of time talking about. The problem is uh, drug companies have trouble uh, making these programs feasible for themselves or doing it feasibly at the scale that, you know, would, would be appropriate for uh, the, the, the medicine and the, and the circumstance. So, so how can they do it? Well, Wide Trial was created to answer uh, a big part of that. And uh, we're not the only approach. There's a lot of great innovation in this space. And fortunately, at the Expanded Access Summit, we, we really go far to uh, to to highlight a lot of the academic and commercial innovations that are happening in this area. Uh, I think we do it in a very academically pristine way. We separate uh, commercial interests from panel discussions. Um, but to answer your question about why trial, and I also want to say why trial is not, uh, not a, a, a part of the program decision-making of the overall summit. It's, it's two completely different uh, uh, 
ventures that I'm involved with, they do different things, although I have to admit the objective is the same, and that is we want to improve the landscape for patients. So, so Wide Trial is a, to answer your question, is a third-party platform for sponsoring expanded access programs. So I, I actually, and this is my own belief, I don't believe science-driven companies, commercial companies that have a job to do, that are pre-market, I don't think they're in good place to uh, fully utilize the our government's regulations and mechanisms for expanded access. Uh, they they have limited resources, meaning product, but also cash flow. Um, and and up until a few years ago, the only way in which they could make product available was to bear all the costs themselves. Uh, for providing product, for engaging with healthcare providers, for submitting the IND and, and uh, doing the pharmacovigilance and reporting that's all required for that. So they're, they're, they're kind of getting stung twice. They, they have to do all the work of a clinical trial. Uh, they probably don't know the space very well, so they also have to hire a CRO or a consultant or both. They're paying a fee on top of that. And that's... Um, that's not very good. That's not getting us closer. We want to motivate companies to, to do this or at least make it practicable. So Wide Trial says something different. We say, look, why don't we just do it for you? And by doing it for you, I don't mean as a CRO, that's a contract research organization, stepping in and doing the work on the drug company's behalf. I mean, we actually do it for the drug company. We sponsor the expanded access program with our own investigational new drug filing. So we sort of step in as a drug company under an agreement with the originating drug company. We say, look, just supply us the product. And then we, as experts in the space, can engage sites that are interested in expanded access, that understand the history and the economics of expanded access. So basically that means we don't get charged. These are not commercially funded research trials. So uh, we are not going to pay a health center uh, what a drug company ordinarily has to pay them to run research trials because this is not commercial research. This is an amenity for patients. Um, and also as a third-party sponsor, uh, we can do some things with cost recovery that um, originating drug companies cannot do. We think we can recover costs from a, from a range of stakeholders. Um, that gets a little bit more complicated than I think the scope of this conversation. But um, we're, we're very excited about uh, making expanded access very, very low cost, or in some cases, zero cost to drug companies, uh, and and thereby allowing it to be an integrated part of the overall drug development process to include many, many times more patients than, than the number that we're including now. I think many people think of expanded access as a, a one-off. You're involved in what you refer to as group expanded access. Can you explain what group expanded access trials are and how they work? Group expanded access trials are the majority uh, case, primary form of expanded access in this country, despite what you just noted and despite what most people hear in the media and in government about expanded access. It, it's really a recent phenomenon that we've been talking about requests coming up from patients or from doctors. Uh, when we talk about drug companies answering individual requests on a one-off basis, um, 
I have some theories as to why this happened. It has something to do with, with uh, the, the lack of, of available treatment options um, and the fact that when there is nothing, when there is no traditional expanded access program or a trial that a patient is eligible for, well, you, one, there is one last button you can push, and that is you can file your own. You, as an individual, you can make this single patient request. But the idea that that should be the majority case, whether that's all we have, um, is, is really unfortunate. So, so here's, here's what expanded access is. Uh, in, I mentioned pre-1987, there were all these uh, individually negotiated programs for patients with tropical diseases or poorly understood cancers. Um, there was a Group C NIH-sponsored cancer program in the 1970s that was, was an early form of expanded access. And these are top-down protocols, just like a clinical trial, but they're intended for patients who fall outside of the inclusion-exclusion criteria of the regular trial. Um, but like a trial, it has a protocol. It has specific alpha sites or, or you know, research centers, um, which with expanded access can actually extend to doctors who don't ordinarily participate in clinical research trials because they're, they're all single arm, open label, they're easier to run, they have fewer endpoints, uh, the screening criteria is much wider, much more liberal. Um, and so you have, but you have the efficiency of a, of a centrally monitored protocol, um, you, you have standard endpoints and most importantly, the doctor does not have to file uh, individual requests for every single patient she or he has, uh, and that is the case with single patient exemptions. So, so the single patient form of expanded access is for very exceptional circumstances. It's recognizing that sometimes there will be medical cases of a patient that has multiple diseases at the same time, or is, or you know, a pediatric case of a of a health condition that ordinarily impacts adults. Um, you know, up until a few years ago, we typically did not have pediatric trials uh, for new medicines and serious diseases. Uh, and, and so there's nothing else. And so the doctor can, you know, has had the option of filing the single patient. Um, and there's about, there's a small number each year, about a thousand. Um, it's grown in the last few years because some people seem to think that that's all we have in the U.S., so it's a few thousand a year. But do the math. Uh, there are 20 million Americans suffering from uh, life-threatening health conditions or, or near-term fatality risk due to a condition. Uh, and, and the vast majority, I mean, over 90% in many diseases don't meet inclusion-exclusion criteria for research trials. You do the math, and, you know, 5,000, 10,000 patients a year is nothing compared to um, what you could engage in, in top-down group-level programs. To give you another reference for the size difference, um, in the in the 80s and 90s during the AIDS crisis, we saw expanded access programs, traditional, real expanded access programs, at a cohort level, enrolling thousands of patients at a time, um, tens of thousands of patients at a time. So you have a phase two or a phase three research trial, 250 patients, very narrowly selected. You have to do that in order to see your signal, but everybody else for whom the medicine, um, or at least exploratory use of the medicine would be suitable, uh, that's expanded access. You saw it again in the early 2000s with the first wave of receptor inhibitor drugs, very selective medicines, um, and, you know, relatively few off-target effects, very well tolerated. Uh, again, you saw 
uh, Gleevec, over 8,000 patients, expanded access, um, Eloxetin, Tycurb, Alinta, uh, similarly large. Iressa had 24,000 patients in it. Um, that's the majority case. And um, that's what we want to get back to. We want to make group programs. By the way, they don't all have to be that big. You can also do what's called an intermediate population IND. Uh, if you're in a smaller population or if your medicine is much more expensive, which is the case lately with breakthrough uh, oligonucleotide, gene therapies, cell therapy, uh, IO, medicines, and cancer, these are expensive. And so if you can't do a 1,000 um, or if the circumstances suggest that from a regulatory perspective, maybe you should not be engaging a whole treatment population. You can do smaller programs. You can do uh, 80 patients, uh, 100 patients, up to about 150 in an intermediate population program. Uh, still, that's one single protocol, and it's just much more efficient. Um, you know, you, you do these in in aggregate, and uh, you've got a much you know that's that's the conversation about how to truly enable treatment access for uh, for patients across the country instead of trying to squeeze a stadium full of people through a single-file turnstile. Well, what's the case for why drug developers should embrace these studies? It's more patients, and more patients mean a lot of things. More patients involved in the overall drug development process, even when we're including patients who are no longer uh, elite research subjects, patients who may have chronic kidney disease uh, or may, have, may not be right in the age range we like or may have progressed to a point uh, at which maybe the, the value of their, of their clinical measured outcomes uh, is less than the value of a measured outcome within patients who meet the eligibility criteria. Uh, there's still something there. You still, first of all, learn safety. And throughout the history of expanded access programs, uh, the, the results of, of these programs have been utilized to support the safety claims of the drug. Uh, it, it's always good. We've seen it. And even when an outcome may not be good, uh, they reveal things in a controllable a uh, monitored environment, which arguably is much better than finding out uh, after your market is approved that there's some extra sensitivity in a subpopulation of a drug. Uh, we saw that in the case of Vioxx. We saw that in the case of Biogen's uh, uh, MS drug, Tisabri, where if they had done uh, large size or large enough size, expanded access programs, we might have known that there were subpopulations who reacted really badly to those, to those drugs. Um, but, but more often than not, it's, it's, it's not dealing with serious adverse events. They're, they're rarely related to the drug itself. If the drug is authorizable for expanded access, um, they're, they're typically well tolerated. Uh, so you're establishing safety. You're also establishing differential response in in segments of your population who you may not capture in a research trial. And that's important not only in defending claims when you go to FDA with a with an application for new drug approval, uh, but also important for internal decision making. Did we learn something about a subpopulation that 
that gives us interest in developing more for that subpopulation. Uh, we have this, this next pipeline uh, medicine that might be useful in that area. Uh, what about payers? Payers now are starting to push back against coverage of medicines that may actually have gained an FDA market approval, but in which that market approval was based on a very limited data set. In Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, a few years ago, we had the approval of a teplosin, uh, an all, uh, antisense oligonucleotide, very exciting medicine, but uh, there was not a lot of data. Um, people can argue about whether FDA made the right decision or the wrong decision, but one thing that is very clear is that the payers um, gave the disease community a very hard time uh, when patients were seeking access to the drug uh, and needed reimbursement for it. And that's because there was not a lot of data. So um, the, the, the consented outcomes that can come from a well-designed expanded access program in a much larger set of patients, much less expensively per patient, is, is a compelling opportunity for industry. The third annual expanded access summit will be held at the end of January. What is it and why did you create it? We're excited about this summit, Danny. Every year, uh, it, it seems to get uh, more and more attention, and um, I, I take a personal uh, level of excitement around it. Um, it still doesn't make a lot of money because I, I put most of the proceeds back into the production quality. But this event means a lot to my partners, to me, to uh, others who've been active in this space because it has needed a central definitive forum for establishing best practices uh, and establishing policy guidance on, on how to engage more patients in, in a pre-market setting, how to integrate expanded access programs in modern ways into the overall drug development process. Uh, yes, there have been other events in this space, and uh, you know I, I, I don't want to get in trouble by them, but I, I think other events have struggled to... Um, to really capture and focus on the core factors that make expanded access uh, uh, feasible and to capture the real innovations in this space. Um, and they don't struggle because they're, they're bad people or that they don't care. Uh, they're just not necessarily subject matter experts producing these events. And that's a, that's a rare thing. Usually uh, industry conferences are produced by conference companies. Um, some people call them conference factories kind of a pejorative term. I'm not sure I like that. But, uh, you know, they're, they're at a loss to know really who the right speakers are. Um, sometimes they can inadvertently be guilty of pay for play. So uh, the, the companies that put the most money into uh, promoting their own work uh, or their own expanded access programs inadvertently become the chair of the conference and have undue influence over the program. Um, and we need more than that. We, we need, you know, truly focused subject matter expert produced events in this space. Um, and then personally, I'm, I'm a little bit strange. I, I mentioned I, I do put a lot of my own time and energy into making sure we do a great job. So we've got uh, an extraordinary amount of preparation amongst the panelists. We, I've known all the people in this space for the last 10 years. Uh, so... You know, I'm lucky to have access to the best uh, subject matter experts and top people at FDA and NIH to uh, 
to come and engage in, in thorough conversation. So we think it's an event that's like no other. And um, we asked for feedback at the last year, the second annual Expanded Access Program Summit, uh, Expanded Access Summit. And uh, we just got tremendously positive response. They said, keep doing it if you can. This is, this is an amazing event. Well, who should attend and what can they expect to get out of it? The conference is primarily uh, an industry conference, but that does not mean it is limited to industry. This is a, a truly all-stakeholder global forum on pre-market access. And the reason why it's primarily an industry conference is that that's how we started. In 2017 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we, we reached out with one singular prospect, and that is to make expanded access programs more feasible uh, for drug companies, particularly small uh, science-driven drug companies that otherwise, you know, have trouble affording it, or otherwise, you know, they don't even have time to to find out what the regulations and business practices are. So we started with that, but clearly, you don't have a real conversation unless you have all the stakeholders in the room. So we branched out. We uh, last year we we brought Janet Woodcock to the event. We moved it to Washington D.C. to have more uh, engagement of people uh, on the Hill in Congress, uh, people at NIH, people at FDA. Um, and uh, another aspect of doing it in D.C. is you've got national headquarters of patient organizations and policy institutes. So right now, uh, last year, and also our, um, our our registrations for the upcoming event, um, it's tracking very very closely. It's uh, it's 60% pharmaceutical, which is split pretty evenly between big and small, um, big pharma and then little uh, and big bio and then smaller companies that are pre-market. Uh, and then the, rate, the remaining 40% is a mix of, of um, academic uh, medicine and uh, nonprofit disease organizations and advocacy, uh, policy guidance I mentioned. Uh, there's a mix of service providers in there as well, probably about 10%. Um, uh, government and individuals, including patients. So we have a nice thing. We've, um, to the extent possible, uh, we've um, opened this up for free to uh, patients uh, or caregivers. The third annual Expanded Access Summit will be held January 27th to 29th at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Jess Rayborn, CEO of Wide Trial and executive producer of the Expanded Access Summit. Jess, thanks as always. Thank you, Danny. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.